This is the Wide Awake Parenting Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Kirsten Kazarian. As a child psychologist, I believe the most important part of the work I do is supporting parents by helping them deeply attune to their child and find their own balance of connection, nourishment, and inspiration. To do this, I lean on the practice of mindfulness. Join me in a conversation about raising our kids, raising our consciousness, and trying to stay awake. Welcome to episode eight. Today, I'm speaking with Ronette Parker. She's an applied behavior analyst, and she works primarily with children with an autism diagnosis. She's going to share with us how she weaves mindfulness into her behavioral work with children and parents for optimal results. She's a huge special needs advocate. She blogs and YouTubes all sorts of practical and compassionate information for parents and professionals. I follow all her offered resources on social media, so when I reached out to her, I was stoked she was willing to join us on the show. If you're a parent currently wondering if mindfulness can help your child with autism symptoms, special needs, or even behavior that just seems really different from same-age peers, this episode is for you. Not only do I find Ronette's message really inspiring as a parent and a psychologist, she's a practical problem solver, and today she's sharing her tips and experience, as well as a personally curated resource list just for us. Hi, Renette. Welcome to the Wide Awake Parenting Podcast. I'm so grateful you're joining us today. So would you mind telling us a little bit about the work you currently do and how you ended up doing this work? Sure. And thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. So I've been in the special education field for the last 22 years. Um, I've done ABA approximately the last 12 years. And then I taught my own severe special needs class for the last 10 years. And um, through that time, I used a lot of ABA I did find um, I've, you know, gone through all the classes, the credentialing, everything to get my BCBA. But what I noticed once I had my own classroom for the last 10 years, I had uh, um, some very severe cases and students that were very self-injurious, as well as hurting myself and my staff. What I did notice, there's a lot of anxiety surrounding every diagnosis, and The last year of my teaching, which was last school year, I decided to bring in more mindfulness practices that I was doing myself. Um, I do suffer from anxiety, so I brought it into my classroom, and we went from having a class that we couldn't go three days without an injurious behavior or somebody being hurt to almost a full school year of nobody being hurt, nobody hurting themselves. Um, I would start with transitions, and we would do a lot of meditation, yoga, deep breathing, art, play, things like that that I was able to use to help calm the anxiety. And once my students' anxiety was calm, their mind was more open to learning new techniques that would help them react appropriately to triggers that were happening. 
that would usually escalate in aversive behaviors. Once I was able to have them become, they were more open to learning other strategies that would be that would be more beneficial for themselves as well as others. And so that's how I got into this. And I wasn't. Um, I wanted to reach a bigger scale. Um, I kind of felt like working in the school district restricted me a bit. So in June of this last year, I decided to end my teaching career and go out onto my own and open Ronette Parker Mindful ABA. Wow, that is so powerful the way you shared that, that shift that you saw by bringing um, your mindfulness work into your classroom. Uh, yeah. Can I ask you to just explain really uh, briefly the ABA, what that stands for, for our listeners? Sure. ABA is um, Applied Behavioral Analysis, and there's a lot of companies that do this. Um, there, It's a lot of one-on-one work. It's a lot of, it's very uh, clinical um, in some cases, especially with um with clients who are maybe more severe and need that real tight one-on-one care with them in doing a lot of rope work, that works really well. And I do scale back sometimes to doing that where we're providing reinforcement. So anything that, you know, is particularly uh, makes them happy, what they really want. Um, if I'm trying to develop a new skill, I'm going to reinforce all the time. And once that skill slowly becomes mastered, I'm going to fade my reinforcement. And that's where I can incorporate more mindfulness techniques where I can help them because we're not having to work so tightly on behaviors, then we can be a little more flexible, which is another skill that, um, you know, the demographic I typically work with is children who have autism. Flexibility isn't something that comes naturally to all of them. And so that's a skill that has to be taught as well. And I find that using the mindfulness practices really aids in that the way that you're describing this very clinical behavioral work you do and you've melded it with mindfulness, which um, makes sense to me, but I think a lot of times it's not intuitive to, to some people that these two things can go so beautifully together. I mean, if you have anything else you want to share about how you incorporate mindfulness into your behavioral work, Yeah. And I totally agree with you because the two are people will see that they're, you know, ABA and mindfulness seem as though they're on opposite ends of the spectrum and that they can't be woven together when in fact, weaving them together is going to get the optimal success for a child. Um, Excuse me. If we're able to do this, you know, the part of why I did it as well is ABA, you know, I, I love, but I know a lot of families, either they tried it and it was, they didn't care for it. So as soon as they see ABA or hear ABA, they're, you know, the kind of the wall goes up and I do understand that. So incorporating mindfulness, I'm taking this unique individual and I'm using their strengths to help foster some of their challenges. I'm taking their own personal interests that typically you wouldn't in a clinical ABA setting. I'm not able to do that. This gives me the freedom to be more creative so I can tailor a plan for each client and that's going to help be successful because we're building a foundation of trust and respect that I'm getting to know them and what they really like and they're showing me. 
and I'm able to, you know, we're creating that, that relationship together. And, you know, from everything that I've read, all the cool resources you've put out and in speaking with you, that's the first thing that comes forward for me is, is this, um, ability for you to really see each of your clients completely for themselves as individuals. Um, yeah. and I hear you just describing that again in, and how you approach your work, um, that this is foundational for you. It is, it really is. And, um, I've been so blessed to work with so many different people from my students, my clients to other service providers, speech pathologists, occupational therapists, psychiatrists, neurologists. Um, I've just, I've been so blessed to be able to be in different environments where I can learn so much. My clients and my students I consistently learn from them. I'm learning what I'm doing that doesn't work. And I'm, then they're teaching me, this is what will work for me. If we listen, they're going to show us the way they need to learn. And that's, I think, what it's really about is I can't force you to learn the way I teach. I need to change how I'm teaching so that I can, you know, you can show me what's going to work best for you so that we are creating, you know, this, this community of, uh, you know, children right now who are diagnosed. What I'm trying to help and advocate for is that they will be grown-ups who can help be productive members of society and they can take care of themselves. And we have these windows of, of time to work with them where it's the most beneficial. And that's what I want to do. It also decreases when they have a diagnosis, it's not just your child that has a diagnosis, it's the whole family. And so it, it you know, the, it affects every pocket of the family, a marriage, siblings, everything. I have a child, a nine-year-old who is um, diabetic. And so I have the unique opportunity when I was teaching to be on the IEP educational team, but also my daughter had a 504, so I was a parent. So I was sitting on both sides of the table a lot of the time. And I know what that feels like. That's taught me a lot of empathy, a lot of empathy and a lot of gratitude for opportunities I've had to be a service to other families. You know, you have so much compassion. I can hear it for these clients, but also the whole family. And so what would you say? We have parents and teachers listening. We have mental health professionals, medical professionals listening. What would you, like, what's, you know, in this short time we have together, would you want us to know about working with children with autism, but also with their parents? Having a child who has any diagnosis of anything, and this can be from health to cognitive, anything, is very, you feel very isolated. There's a certain way that each of us, when we have a child, we sort of picture, whether we realize it or not, the way we feel their life is going to go and all these wonderful things that we have planned for them. When there's a diagnosis, it's very difficult to adjust what our expectations were. I think we need to throw some grace at parents. I think we need to let them know they're not alone because that's where it's going to start from. If the parent's cup isn't filled, 
then they're not going to be able to be there for their child in the capacity that they need to be. So that's a really important part to me. I advocate for self-care for the family, for the parents, because like I said, if your cup's not filled up, you, you can't be of help to anybody else. And I was a single mom for a long time. And like I said, with my daughter who has diabetes, plus I was a special needs teacher and I had a lot of kids that were self-injurious. I, you know, um, it was a, a hamster wheel. So I, and I didn't practice self-care. I think that's where a lot of my empathy comes from is being in that position. So that's what I like to, to have other people be aware of for these families is it's very isolating um, or they feel very isolated. So throw some grace and then just listen. Sometimes they just want an ear they just want someone to listen because when you have a child that has a diagnosis, it can be, like I said, isolating, but it can be your friends don't understand if their children aren't diagnosed. Um, they won't know where you're coming from. You have other people telling you what you should do who have never been in that position. Um, build, and to build your community, start meetup groups with other parents, um, share resources. There's like Parents Helping Parents Network in Santa Cruz County and the surrounding counties. That's a great resource. Um, like I said, start meetup groups. I was going to start a couple meetup groups for parents so that they could kind of pick my brain about behaviors, but also network with one another. Because that's where you're really, that's the people you want to lean on when you're tapped out. That's a big, big part of it is just getting those connections because there's so, like, I, you know, I keep saying that they do feel very isolated. And I understand that feeling of isolation. Um, and then being scared to, to trust other, other people because they might not know how I feel. But, you know, it's, it's a give and take. Um, and it, it is looking at a child, you know, um, people who work with a child or even you have a loved one who has autism or, or another diagnosis is understanding this isn't, you know, a, a child, you know, a, a diagnosis. This isn't a label. This is a child that happens to have a diagnosis. And if you think about it, we all have something that, you know, that defines us. You know, I have blue eyes. I'm you know, I'm a woman with blue eyes. Well, that doesn't mean that that piece of defines me. It means it's a piece of me. This diagnosis is just a part of who they are. That doesn't define the whole being. Defining the whole being is getting to know each individual child, their likes, dislikes, triggers, uh, their strengths, just like you would any other person you would meet on the street. Are there any things that you can share with us generally um, that we can do either in the home or at school to support a child with autism that you've seen um, are just really great foundational places to start and maybe they're um, your mindfulness, you know, maybe they have pieces of mindfulness with, within them or <laughs> behavioral um, of pieces? I'd say that um, for educators, get to know your your special ed staff because they're going to be a great resource. If it's families at home and you want to just do some basics of, of fostering somebody that might have some of these issues, you know, why not have like a sensory area where it's, I, I would call it like a cool down area. Um, in my classroom, we had a big... Um, 
it was called the gingerbread house and it was made out of cardboard and that was the cool down area and what it provided was a quiet darker area now you can make these out of you know in closets I have them on you know my Pinterest um, board that I pin a lot of sensory uh, activities and spaces but just creating a space where if somebody is getting too overstimulated then they can go to and it's a safe space Thank you. Um, and I had, you know, I was wondering because there is just a lot more awareness, I think, towards just general sensory issues. Um, there's, we seem as a community to be more sensitive to this. So would these interventions be useful for children that just have general, um, like sensory uh, sensitivities as well as children with autism? Yeah, you know, I think it's, <laughs> I always laugh because um, when, you know, something like going to Costco, I dread it. And I'm pretty good sensory-wise, but thinking about going to a place like Costco, I immediately get anxiety and my energy depletes. Going in there, I am on sensory overload. So I have to come home and, you know, be in a darker place or, you know, like where the shades are drawn and just like calm down. This is great, I think, for anybody. If somebody needs to get away from a trigger or something that could potentially be a trigger, provide that space. And this could be, uh, you know, even a child that is just having like this time of year, schedules are off, routines are off. Kids are a little bit on edge because now, you know, Christmas is over. So all that, that anticipation and the climax is gone. And now it's kind of like, well, now what's the next big thing? So they're a little edgy. And so why not create more opportunities for that? If you don't mind, I was so moved reading your open letter to parents um, and parents of special needs children. I think you had been specific. Uh, so would you mind if we linked that to our show notes as well? I just thought it really highlights your deep compassion and your experience. Oh, yeah, um, definitely. Thank and you. just really see parents and what they're going through. So you guys will be able to find Renette online, basically, all her social media. Um, you'll be able to find she took the time to recommend a, a few resources for us. Um, and so those will be in our show notes as well. And then what's the best way for someone that would like to connect with you, work with you? What's the best way for them to reach out to you? Um, either email or call me. Um, and my email, ronetteparkeraba at gmail.com, or call me. And on my website, ronetteparkeraba.com, has my phone number. Um, those are the two best ways to get a hold of me. Um, and I, you know, I always love hearing from parents or even, you know, I just, I'm having a problem with this. Is there anything, you know, you can, you know, tell me that I can do, even if, you know, they're far away, they're close. I love hearing from parents and problem solving. Donna, is there anything else that you would like to share with our wide awake community? I hope that just after hearing this podcast, I know there's a lot of um, autism awareness and I'm just hoping we keep doing that. And there's autism acceptance and there's acceptance for differences for any kinds of challenges. Just keep that dialogue open. Keep talking about, you know, we're, we're in a climate right now, I believe with everything that's going on in the media and stuff to really 
really kind of all band together and, and change the trajectory of how our, the world is going. And I feel like it's starting to go in a really wonderful place because we're becoming more open, more compassionate, and have more empathy for other people. So if we can teach our children this and, you know, lower your judgment and up your compassion, there's nothing wrong with that. That hurts nobody. So let's try that. And that's what I really want. You know, I want to see for my own child and I want to see for other people's children. Well, thank you, Ronette. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. I hope you guys enjoyed connecting with Ronette as much as I did. You can find all of her contact information and recommended resources in our show notes, which you can find by going to wideawakeparenting.com, clicking on show notes and selecting episode eight. If you found this information useful, please share the episode with your friends and family and make sure you're subscribed so you don't miss anything. That is our show. Next week, we'll discuss how to be an empowered parent when working with your child's healthcare providers. Thank you so much for joining me. I'm Dr. Kirsten Kazarian, and until we meet again, be gentle with yourself, courageous on your path, and let's help each other try to stay awake.